Um, I think Brian's given me a very good tip there. Um, carrying straight on is very much what I think I'm going to do. Um, and let the pictures talk as much as they can, and I'll do... I'll just commentate on the pictures. I've worked out that I'm not a lecturer. In fact, I'm just a chorus in the old Greek sense. What matters is what happens on the screen, and I just comment on it. Um, the other thing I want to say is that I stand here as a lover, not as a historian, not as a scholar, or any of these things. I've been in love with Chartres for 45 years, probably, maybe 50 years. I don't count. But um, lovers are necessarily and notoriously um, fragile in their facts and figures, so if I get things wrong, please don't jump up and tell me how wrong I got it. Wait till the end, and then you can get your machine gun out and just wipe me out. That's fine. <laughs> so I'm going to go straight on with the first slide here. Do I turn something off here? It's okay, fine. Can we have the first slide here? Um, this slide itself, as the um, grubbiness around the edges will show, is already 40 years old. It's one of the early shots I took. What's so magnificent about the Cathedral of Chartres is that it's still standing in what's called the Burse country in France, which is the grain-growing area of France. So, well, here we are actually in somebody's fruit and vegetable garden, but look how close the food is still being grown to the cathedral. And remember, one very important thing is a civilization can only be sustained on a surplus of grain. Civilization needs to have a surplus of grain for it to keep going. That's not to say that civilization isn't bound by much higher laws and rules to do with inspiration and so forth, but the burst country around that cathedral is the grain-growing basin of France and it's been one of its great wealths. The other thing which is good to know and good to remember is that the wealth that finally um, made Chartres what it is came from, curiously enough, mostly female farmers. I say female because the males of most families were usually enlisted and they're off marching in somebody's army somewhere, but there was an extraordinary um, uprising of feminine energy and the ladies of the farmers' wives and so forth took over. They were allowed to own land for the first time. They were allowed to join the craft guilds for the first time and so forth. <clears throat> so the fact that the whole thing of a cathedral, the whole event, is a, what's called a Marian energy is very much to do with from every level upwards uh, to the final cathedral. What you see are two towers and historians will talk to you about there being different sizes because the ego of one mason was wanted to make one tower bigger than the other. Well, I'm hoping to demonstrate to you tonight that it's nothing to do with that at all. They are, in one hand, they're the two fingers of Christ, blessing, which he always holds up. The solar tower is the larger finger, the lunar tower is the index finger. Those two fingers are blessing the whole natural world and its produce in, in, around the cathedral. That's, that is with the point of view that would be taken by the people of the time. Next thing I'm going to show you is <coughs> here. We don't have to go into any mysterious lengths as to where and how the people from Chartres learned about their geometry because they were acutely aware of the natural world. And the Holy Trinity would be looking at them from this humble little leaf of clover as much as it would from anything else. They were also, next one here, next slide here, please. 
experts in grain and a very simple look at the analysis of grain. It's either in two-fold symmetry, four-fold symmetry, or six-fold symmetry. You don't have to go anywhere to learn geometry. You just have to, that is if you're working closely with the land, you go to the natural world. And the natural world is the traditional teacher and reminder. Finally, next one here. It's always occurred to me, somebody here will know what flower that is. Aquilegia. I couldn't remember. Thank you very much. I hope that's an English and European flower, not imported from America. Is that right? Yes. Oh, good. So I can say the people from Chartres would know the Aquilegia plant. But this is, again, rather interesting difference here. We don't get five-fold symmetry in... No, go back, sorry. We don't get five-fold symmetry in these grains, but we do get five-fold symmetry in the, in the flower world. Now, if I remember rightly, Rupert, you told me that the flowers are here many millions of years before we were. Yes, sir. And I think that um, we're very fortunate that the flowers allowed us in. <laughs> Some way of looking at it. But what's for sure is that a flower is not fulfilled, as far as I can understand, until a human being registers it in their consciousness. There's no other creature that can fully appreciate what a flower is in terms of color, symmetry, and all these different things. So certainly the flowers are there to teach us, as far as I can see. Next one here. Now the crux of this lecture is going to be based on the fact this is Father Abraham, and he has the souls of the three monotheistic religions in his, in his little garment. He's, he's looking after if you like, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They're all fathered by Abraham. This is one of the sculptures on the building. And my talk is going to be the interactions that have taken place over the centuries between these three monotheistic religions and the contribution they made to the cathedral itself. Next one here. When you see the whole building like that, of course, this is many hundreds of years after the period I'm going to go back to, which is the 10th century. Um, and there was an unbelievable um, period of 100 years where cathedrals just sprouted out of the ground. Brian's poem is a very good example of it, but um, just for those who like statistics, more stone was taken out of the ground in Europe and put up into cathedral form in actually 400 years than the whole 2,000 years of pyramid building in Egypt. We look at the big pyramids and we see what an extraordinary amount of stone and, and people, I was brought up to believe they were all put there by slaves, I don't actually believe it, but here sheer spiritual inspiration raised more stone out of the ground and put it up into cathedral forms in Europe in 400 years than had been for maybe 4,000 years in Egypt. Next one here. When we look at the royal portal, every single aspect of the cathedral has symbolic meaning, and a symbolic meaning which directly relates to the being of any single human being looking at it. There's a, there is a reflection of the whole of your, if you like, spiritual body between here and the triangle apex there like that. This, quite simply, is the heart. And for those of you who've been into the spiritual bodies, you know that the heart center is 12-fold. And there's a little one below that, 
which is actually uh, beautifully um, talked about or sung in the hymn of Jesus. But there's a little tiny chakra of eight below the main 12 chakra in the Hindu system. Now, I have to say that um, I'm going to tread carefully because I know the audience here are far more tolerant. I was asked to go and give this talk many, many years ago at Christian Society in Essex. And, so, and I mentioned things about chakras and Hinduism. And as soon as the lecture was over, it was met with deadly silence. And I was taken into a room, and the whole of the Christian society prayed for my soul for about half an hour. <laughs> and they accused me of saying the Hindus had come in and built Chartres Cathedral. And I said, no, that wasn't what I was saying at all. Anyway, so I have to tread carefully. So here we have the royal portal, and here we have Christ. And he is inside this sometimes called a mandala. It's a perfect geometric shape, and it happens to be the first proposition of Euclid, that shape. It happens to be a lot of other things as well, but if you open the book of Euclid, which was the most read book in Christendom in the Middle Ages, next to the Bible, and one of the reasons is, I hope to touch on the reason, which is to do with the fact that Plato had said quite clearly in, in the Republic that doing arithmetic, doing geometry, doing music, and studying astronomy rekindled that organ you have within you which has been deadened by using your fleshly eyes to appreciate the world. It is 10,000 times more valuable than your fleshly eyes, that organ within, which is rekindled by doing geometry and arithmetic. We'll come back to that. So the most curious thing, there's Christ inside the first proposition of Euclid. Next one here. But the same proposition of Euclid is the whole geometry of the cathedral. It's also the ark where all the creatures went in to be saved. But the key to it is, it is believed this is where the rose window was intended to be originally. This, this is the end, end of Fulbert's church. And it was advanced forward to here. And I'm going to demonstrate why I believe that is the case. But the key here is that, I don't think I can reach there without falling off this platform. A little point there and that little point there. Sorry, I haven't got a stick still. Can you see the two points, which are the yeah. absolute width? They are the points that you put the point of your compass. That point up there strikes this arc all the way up to the top. That point there strikes this arc all the way down to here. So the two arcs only necessary to make that shape. Now, many people have seen this, and books have been published about it. And every time I give a lecture, sooner or later, another book of charts seems to come along. But what can you do? The answer is write it yourself, but I've never done it yet. Um, next one there, and I'm going to look at... Okay, first proposition of Euclid, and it is to prove... This is a section through the cathedral now. That shape is drawn to prove how to make an equilateral triangle. Can you see the yellow equilateral triangle there? The uppermost shape of the arc there, the line comes through the peak of this one to come to the outside point here across and back through the top of that arch, the top arch at the top there. So not only does the plan show the arc that Euclid uses to make an equilateral triangle, the section through the cathedral itself is also an equilateral triangle. Now, the fact that it's an equilateral triangle also meant, quite simply, to the makers, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Trinity. It's the nature of the way in which the Spirit comes into this world and withdraws again. Next one here. 
This is the man I'm going to talk about. And I, the sad thing about it is that there isn't a contemporary portrait of Gerbert. Gerbert was a young monk at the age of 13 in Uralek in South France. And he was a very brilliant young monk. And a nobleman came up from Barcelona and said, I'd like, I think this monk is a very clever boy. And I think Christendom badly needs to know a little bit more about education. A bit, bit of a shocking thing to say and do, but he said, if you'll let me take the boy to Spain, we'll, we'll get him educated. So I think um, Gerbert was quite happy to do that. At the age of 17, he went off to live in Barcelona. And in Spain at that time, the most extraordinary thing had happened, as Brian touched on it, there was a confluence of um, brilliant scholars, scientists, astrolog astrologers, astronomers, whichever way you wanted, botanists, um, naturalists, mathematicians, and so forth. They had all come to live in Spain, founding Spain, a wonderful place to be. The, the Jewish community there had escaped from Babylon and escaped from the um, rather pressurized um, discipline coming from Babylon. So they thought they'd go to Spain. When they got to Spain, they decided to make themselves independent. And some very, very remarkable Jewish poets, scientists, and so forth, philosophers grew, uh, were nourished in, in the Spanish environment. But as the Arabs had come up through North Africa and taken over Spain mostly, it was only a little tiny piece at the top. Um, I think maybe the next slide shows it. Yes, there we go. Um, there's a lot of crackling going on here. Oh, it's my glasses, is it? Your glasses, and this has come off. Ah! Can you back up again? Sound effects of a storm. Ah, <laughs> oh, but it. Somehow. There we are. Okay. We're back. Yep. Thank you. Lovely. Bless you. Um, this is. The Spanish kingdom in 1030, that's the map we'll explain to you. Right at the very top there, the, in blue, in the Spanish part, the border you can see um, comes down and it was Christian as far as Barcelona. That's Barcelona. The top town there is Aureliac, which is where Gerba was born, the young student Gerba. He was taken to B Barcelona right to the edge of the Christ Christian thing before going in and then Apparently, he traveled right into Cordova and even to Seville. Um, no clear record has been kept of where he went, but he went and discovered that the knowledge that was held by the Muslims at the time was absolutely extensive compared to what was available in the Christian libraries in, in Christendom, above in France. So he turned into an avid collector of knowledge and books and as much as he could. And he was trained in a mathematics which was unheard of in Christendom, which was using but are actually Indian numerals, but they were called Arabic numerals at the time, the numerals we still use now, the cursive ones. And he learned about the Abacus and goodness knows what, and stored all this information and knowledge within him. I'm going to run on one or two of the things that he would have done. Next one here. This, I thought it would be quite useful to mention the fact that the Muslim flowering of interest in Greek uh, philosophy and Greek science and Greek astronomy and so forth came from this remarkable man at the top, Hunayn ibn Ishaq. 
And he was a Christian. <coughs> he became Johannitus, and he was able to translate Syriac texts. The main translations were done into Syriac and then into Arabic. And then eventually, what he translated stimulated the Muslims, and Al-Kindi was the first great Muslim scientist, um, for them to get into what we call Greco-Hellenistic science. Of course, mainly that would be embodied in the Timaeus of Plato. He also, the interesting thing about it is nearly all the, the wise men, whether they were Jewish or Arabic, when, when um, Jerba came down, they were all physicians, they were all doctors, they all promoted health. And of course, this man here, um, but also he also traveled as far as Anatolia to, 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 to finish his Greek. So this was a very remarkable situation. Look, 877, this was even before, this was even the 9th century. So this is the background of, of the information which was traveling through North Africa here and up into Spain. And the kind of information that was available for Gerba. Next one there. Here's another very extraordinary man. I've just been learning about these things myself, my research. And he, of course, was born in 925. And he was, and there's, there's a list here of 19 different things that he wrote, which are quite extraordinary. But he was described as, as you know, one, the top physician of Islam, man of great kindness, generosity, and industry. That's a very nice recommendation. But he was also an alchemist and a voluminous producer of scientific and philosophical texts. They were extraordinary people in those times. The idea of being um, a generalist was absolutely normal. And both for the Jewish and for the Muslims, and of course for Jerba too, it was all in the light of the revelation in which they were um, committed to. The light of unity, the revelation. So just first four things that Al-Razi, or Razes as he was called in Latin, first of all, this was um, a, a thorough analysis of, of, of Aristotle. Next, metaphysics in general. Next, absolute and particular matters. Plenum and vacuum, time and space, physics. It goes on and on. But what is interesting is that Gerber will have come across science which is alchemy. And that alchemy, I think, is something which has been deeply neglected. It's very under great suspicion by modern um, physicists and so forth as to what alchemy was. It was some sort of primitive thing they did and it was mumbo-jumbo, goodness knows what. But I'll come on to that again in a minute. Next one here. So Al-Razi himself was very well known and part of the thing they brought with them was that geometry and number were not just one, two, three, four or point, line, plane, solid, but they were also a point was essence, a line was being, a plane was virtue and a solid was action. These are coming through four worlds, four different metaphysical worlds. And the very well known in Jewish philosophy, the idea of the four worlds, but something which, again, would have been completely new to um, young Gerba, and therefore, in a sense, new to Christian philosophy. Next one here. So, the other extraordinary influence of these group of people called the Brethren of Purity. The Brethren of Purity, as faith will have it, were in the 10th century the most extraordinarily influential group of people in Basra. 
which we hear quite a lot about these days. And it's sometimes quite useful for us to remember that both Baghdad and Basra were great centers of civilization. And in this particular case, these people called the Brethren of Purity managed to keep their group of people, managed to keep them anonymous. Nobody knows who they were. And they wrote the largest encyclopedia of all knowledge which was available to humankind at that time. But the way they talked about it was extremely interesting. And they always talked about the, to the reader as a brother. Know this, my brother, we are not opposed to any science. We do not cling to fanatical or any doctrine. As to the support, assistance, and foundation of our cause, they are the books of the prophets. God bless them all. The revelation which they have set forth. So they was an extraordinary encyclopedia. Extraordinary in as much as it still hasn't been translated. And one of the reasons is that it embraces Christian revelation, the Islamic revelation, and the Jewish um, Bible as part of it. It was completely syn syncretic and, and um, probably the reason why it's still, there's a lot of doubt in Islam as to, it, primarily they consider themselves to be Muslims and they, they come from the Muslim point of view. But they embraced the other revelations as well and they embraced Plato, Pythagoras and everything they could get their hands on. And so from that point of view, that book did eventually get to Spain. Whether it was available in Spain when Gerber was there or not, we still don't know. But it was brought into Spain. It was known to have been brought into Spain a little bit later by a man called Kermani. Next one here. So one of the things that Gerber will have come across, I don't know if anybody here has ever done mathematics in Roman numerals. It's one hell of an exercise, and I don't recommend it. It is extraordinary how retarding, not retarded, retarding Roman numerals can be if you're trying to do mathematical calculations. And so Gerber will have learned not only about morphic numbering, which is the way in which the Greeks, both Aristotle, Plato, Euclid, these great names, they did not have written numbers. They did not have written numerals. And they actually worked in pebbles. That's where the way chalix in Greek and cal calcis, Latin for stone, that's where calculation comes from. Calculation comes from the manipulation of pebbles. And that meant that whenever you did mathematics, arithmetic, you were doing geometry inevitably too. So the squaring of numbers, that is two squared. Two by two, it's four. This is four squared, four fours, that's 16. So learning about where the word squaring comes from for mathematicians is, is beautifully demonstrated. And what Gerber did, he learned about the use of the abacus for the first time. It wasn't, wasn't available in Europe. It had been, but it had been forgotten. And so they realized, he and many other people on the planet, drilling holes through these pebbles and making them into beads and putting them onto strings gave them a very powerful calculating, a very fast calculating tool, nearest to a computer that you could have in those days. Uh, apparently, Gerber made the largest abacus that had ever been made with ivory beads when he brought it back. Next one here. He also learned about the principle of numbering as number being the most powerful and the most sacred, the nearest abstraction the human mind could get to the mind of God. thing we, we, we have lost completely. Mathematics is an abstract language now to most people, and most people were frightened out of it at school. I certainly was, sadly. Um, but I've managed to get back to it with me marbles, as they say. 
I had the good fortune of um, helping His Royal Highness um, with these things. And he said, now I know what they mean when they say you've lost your marbles. <laughs> what do we have here? We have very important cosmic numbers. <laughs> but we wouldn't think today it was a wise thing to talk about very simple number patterns being cosmic. You have one in the middle, one blue one in the middle. Okay, that's unity. All number is summed by unity. Around that are six other marbles, the six days of creation. The seventh day of rest, of course, is the center, because the center doesn't need to move, it doesn't need to go anywhere. So we have the six days of creation symbolized there. <coughs> Next orbit, around that, these are all close packed, they're all touching each other, all in triangular relationship. Next, the orange ones, how many of those? Twelve. Good. See how, everybody be careful not to jump out. And I, I would hope there'd be a chorus of twelves coming there. Twelve. What is 12 plus 7? What do we know about the number 19 cosmically? We know about the number 7 because it's 7 days of a week. It's the moon cycle. And we know what 12 is in terms of the orange one. We know that's the solar cycle of the year. 19 is the Sarah cycle. Sun and moon come into exact coordination every 19th year. If there's a new moon on the 1st of January, 8 in 19 years' time, there'll be a new moon on the 1st of January. So it is the number of coordination. It's also a very extraordinary number, which uh, inhabits both the Holy Quran and the Christian Gospels in a very remarkable way. But I think I'll be careful not to go too far into all that at the moment. Next one here. So what Gerber learned was the curriculum, which had been nurtured since Plato's time, the scientific, or the science arts, they ought to be called. They're not pure science, they're not pure arts. But arithmetic was first, geometry second, harmony or music third, astronomy or cosmology fourth. But arithmetic was pure number, geometry is number in space, harmony is number in time, and cosmology is number in space and time. Now, the important thing is that what we are learning, what Gerber learned when he went to Spain was through particularly the Brotherhood of Purity, were very, very keen on showing how Pythagoras influenced Plato and the whole Greek world. What it means is that number is the key thing. Number is the nearest the human mind can get to the mind of God. That's the uh, supposition. So you can see all of these things are an outpouring of number from the very beginning. Next one here. And this curriculum... Now, I won't read this all through, but it's far too long. I've already quoted it. This is from The Republic, Book 7, 527E, if you want a reference. And this is where Plato begins to speak, or Socrates is speaking, I beg your pardon. There is in every soul an organ or instrument of knowledge that is purified and kindled afresh by such studies. Those are the studies he talk, he's just been talking about. When it has been destroyed and blinded by our ordinary pursuits, a faculty whose preservation outweighs 10,000 eyes, by, for, by it alone reality is beheld. So the conviction of this science was not just a, a useful tool, a skill for the body, it was actually the reawakening of the soul. It was a skill for rediscovering your soul. This is what Gerber was learning in Spain. 
Now, that's one hell of a statement. Socrates was not one to make these forceful statements ever. Socrates, on the whole, we know the Socratic method, draw out, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. Here, he's being extraordinary. He's talking to Glaucon, who obviously has slightly needled him, and he just said, you've got to know this third. Of course, in Hinduism, Buddhism, it's very well known. This third organ is often physically shown as a third eye, but it's an organ of perception, which he says is worth 10,000 of our other eyes. Well, that's quite something. When Plato himself had already said earlier, or Socrates rather, that the greatest gift we'd had as human beings is the gift of sight. So, anyway, next one here. Right, this just gives the context a little larger now. I do wish I had a stick. I meant to bring my laser beam, but I didn't bring it. Um, we've talked about Gerbert was born there, the little blue square, Aureliac. He came down to Barcelona. From Barcelona, do we have one of those magic things? From Barcelona, he came, comes down to Cordova and Seville. He may well have um, visited other centers of learning while he was there. Um, ah, wonderful. I can now beat any naughty intervener. <laughs> so here's Gerba, born 940, comes down as a young man, 17 years old, learns things here, then he realizes the best, thing, best things are to be found in Cordova and Seville. Then, the other place, very important place in his life is here, Reims. Reims or Reims, depends how you pronounce it. And the other very important place is Chartres, from the school of Chartres. My contention is, in this talk, and it's a completely personal one, is that Gerber himself was the visionary, the founder of the school of Chartres. The reason being that when he was, he was taken by this nobleman here straight to Rome, after he had learned all the things he learned, straight to Rome, and when he was in Rome, he, he went through an extraordinary political career, and he had a vision for world peace. Again, something which is not very popular ever with anybody. He had a vision for world peace, and he spent the rest of his life actually trying to expand Christendom in such a way to make peace with all the countries above France and above the... Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Empire and so forth. Anyway, he went, he was sent to Reims to teach. He was teaching at Reims, and who should be his student there but Bishop Fulbert. Bishop Fulbert is the man whose music you were hearing when you came in. He is the man who's talked about mostly as being the founder of the School of Chartres. And not only the, but Fulbert and another young student called Hugh Capet. Hugh Capet became a king of France. And Fulbert said that he had the most extraordinary life. He came from very humble origins, but he found himself being asked to be a counselor to popes and kings, and he was always very surprised that was the case. But what it meant was that Gerber passed on this knowledge. He chose his students very carefully, passed on this knowledge, and eventually, when he went back to Rome, he was so clever, the only thing they could do was to make him pope. Now, I don't say that with any humor, but there may be some humor in it too, I don't know. But nevertheless, he was so, he, they realized he had so much knowledge and information that that would be the best thing to do. And he became an extremely good pope, inasmuch that he spent all his time trying to sort out the Christian problems, the negatives that he saw in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. And when he was at Reims up there, he started a whole body of people um, called the Chroniclers. And he decided at the end of his life, I'll come back to this, 
to go to Jerusalem and try to find a way of making lasting peace with the Muslims so there would be no more fighting. But that's, that's another story, we'll come to that later. So, next one here. One of the extraordinary things that he learned when he was in Spain was about alchemy. Alchemy was treated very seriously and could be demonstrated very seriously. Now, I did have another slide I was going to put in here, but I decided I had to take so many slides out because I'm going to keep you here all night. But I want you to notice how little specific color there is on the stone, the light having got through the glass. The glass is intensely colored, red, green, blue, and goodness knows what. But what happens inside the Cathedral of Chartres is this extraordinary pearly light pervades everything when, it's, when, the, when the electric lights are switched off. It's something which I experienced with my students some years back. Absolutely amazing and colored. Whereas you go to many other buildings in France which have got a lot of colored stained glass and the whole floor is covered with colored light. If you find any colored light on the floor in Chartres, you're looking at one or two rare pieces of replacement glass because they no longer can make the glass that doesn't throw colored light into the... It reminds me very much, Rupert, of one of the things you were saying about your daughter asking how the photon got through the window. Well, quite an interesting problem here about what, what seems to happen is that, if it's possible to say such a thing, the photons come into the glass, the glass has got so much thickness, it, it shows intense color, and then somehow it goes back into white light on its way in. It, it, it's, it's impossible. But it, that's what it does. Next one here. Here is a piece of glass, red glass, as a, a modern glazier of stained glass would use it. And there is a very thin strip of red color flashed onto the surface of the glass. Here is a section through, some American researcher did an amazing job. Here's a section through a glass at Chartres with layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of red. Now this was obviously the nearest thing we can talk about being an alchemical process that's going on here. And what was interesting was this American researcher said the nearest thing he had got to compare th this color in the glass at Chartres was the next one here. This is a mechanically made ruby. Um, in other words, not, not a uh, naturally made ruby, but one which has been made in the same way that we can make unnatural diamonds these days. But the whole process of making this unnatural ruby, this is a called a microphotograph, or of course it is a section through, is exactly the same layered process as they did here. How they did this, um, goodness knows. But um, I'm just pointing out that um, it's, it's something which most glaziers that I've talked to avoid, but the fact of the matter is that colored light does not come through the glass at Chartres, and they've tried every excuse under the sun to me as to why it doesn't. They say, oh, it's something to do with the things happening on the outside, it's to do with weathering this, that, It's nonsense. It is, it, the glass at Chartres, I'm sorry to tell you all, it's miraculous. It simply assembles, it breaks up into colored light, and then it reassembles the light back into white light and then puts it into the cathedral, as far as I can see. Anyway, next one here. So, one of the things that Gerba suffered from after he died, and for the first hundred years after he died, there was a rather sad uh, vilification of his reputation. And they said he, when he went to Spain, he learned magic. 
and he learned all these things and he was a rogue and he was in league with the devil and goodness knows what. Very sad, very sad, but this is what happens. But what have we got here? Not only beautiful glass, but who are, the, who are these people here? Exactly. Where does magic come from? It's the practice of astrology by the Magi. They're perfectly respectable people. They're respectable enough to be mentioned in the Gospels, have coming and knew, knowing that Christ was going to be born, where he was born, find him exactly, and bringing the, the presence. So, Magi and magic are not. So, magic is now something which people do on television and everybody tries to find out how they did it. But in those days, magic was a perfectly authentic thing, and it was a, mostly to do with, and this is what Gerber was profoundly interested in, mostly to do with finding how, out how the rest of the universe actually affects human life, um, known as astrology. It's very interesting how the word astrology is very unfashionable for people who don't want to believe in it. And yet, biology is the same Latin prefix or um, suffix, whatever. The biology means the logic of life. Astrology means the logic of the stars, literally. But astronomy, the naming of the stars, astronomy is okay, but not astrology. But one of the reasons being that it deteriorates very badly into, into just simple personal, um, the personal, what's going to happen to you next week, you're going to meet a tall and dark stranger and all that kind of stuff. So there's a very good reason why astrology has been sadly abused. But as far as Job is concerned, and the whole material that came from the Middle East, uh, the greatest astronomer of the time was a Jewish astronomer in the Middle East who sent his, he, and Gerber made sure that he got his mathematics. And it was to do with trying to understand how the conjunctions of the planets worked. And so Gerber made the largest astrolabe that had ever been seen in Europe. And an astrolabe is something which shows the positions, how the planets move in relationship to each other, and you can calculate the, the conjunctions. The point being that those who wanted to put him down and rubbish him said, Oh, he made a talking head out of metal. And that talking head told him things. Well, it, absolute nonsense. What he was doing was trying to find out how the planets were moving in relationship to each other when the major conjunctions would take place and so forth. Whether or not you want to get into that, that's something else. But nevertheless, some people um, have found astrology to be a perfectly respectable thing to go into, given that you use it for the right purposes, like everything else. I, I consulted Sayyid Hussain Naz, one of my great Muslim Sufi friends, and he said, yes, um, astronomy and astrology was used um, traditionally in Islam, but it was only used after a certain age, and it was only used basically for the fate of a whole nation and possibly the fate of the leader of a nation. It was never used for, a personal, for personal reasons. Anyway, we'll move on. Next one here. So, much later diagram, but rather fascinating that part of the this is there is one very good responsible book on alchemy by the way if you haven't got it in your library worth getting Titus Burkhart Titus Burkhart wrote a book on alchemy and utterly reliable very interesting here you have the sphere of unity it's divided into three and four and then you have this androgynous figure called the rebus in, in, in reverse the feminine part of the figure is holding the square, the masculine part of the figure is holding the, the dividers or compasses, and then you've got the seven planets, the sun, the moon, and the five planets together like that. And this, no doubt, is the energy of the world here, below the dragon. 
So this is part of the symbolism which is used by the alchemists and it was all to do with the relationship between human life and the life of the rest of the universe. Nothing was considered to be separate by the wise Muslims and the wise Jews that Jerva came to learn from. Everything is related to everything else. That's the first, first axiomatic principle. Next one here. So I'm now just going to take a little bit of what Jerba will have brought with him in a way, very influential um, Christian doctrine. God dwells in hearts, minds and bodies, in heaven and in earth. He is internally, immutably in the world, around the world, above the world, above the heavens, above all existence. He is sun, star, fire and water, wind, thaw and cloud, cornerstone and rock. He is everything that is, yet he is not, yet he is no created thing. Very important paradox of the principle of unity. Plato's Phaedo dialogue deals with exactly the same thing. Heraclitus, Heraclitus, whichever you pronounce it, dealt with the same problem. If you're going to get to unity, you have to embrace paradox. Aristotelian logic will not embrace paradox. By its very nature, it can't. Hence, we have this problem of a photon being conclusively a particle and conclusively a wave. Is that not right? Yes. yes sir. So, I think that's rather important, but we'll come, I'll stick to what I know about. <laughs> Next one here. So, Avicenna, the great Ibn Sina, one of the most prolific writers of Islam, produced the most extraordinary, he was, he was the greatest expert in angelology. Anybody in this room an angelologist? You may put your hand up now. You see, not one. Yes, of course, or rather, they didn't put their hands up. The whole point about angelology is that it is beholden on Buddhists, it's beholden on Muslims, it's beholden on Jews, it's beholden on Christians to believe in angels. Angels are the messengers of God. So, Avicenna was the great authority, but he, has, he makes a statement very, very similar to um, Dionysius the Areopagite, who, who read this one. The one is all things and no one of them. Whoop. The source of all things is not all things, and yet it is all things in a transcendent sense. All things. There is nothing without the one, that all things are from it, in order that being may be brought about. What are you doing to me? <laughs> the source must be no being but being's generator. The point being that, that here's Avicenna having to come to the same conclusion that uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, one of the greatest influences in Christendom, um, was to deal with the fact that God both is and yet he is not. And that's quite a difficult one for the human mind. Next one here. So, um, having talked about the glass, one of the most haunting figures in the whole of the cathedral, and remember that the cathedral was built as a house for Mary. And here is Mary uh, in the Belverriere window. And I took this photograph because in normal light when you go to look at it, most reproductions show all the reds and greens and very bright, lurid sort of reproduction behind it. But you get this extraordinary haunting blue, this hovering blue Virgin Mary on the south side of the cathedral with the Christ child. Christ's head is always in the heart center of Mary and his feet are here. 
And it occurred to me when I was trying, my very early days of trying to find the proportions of the body of the cathedral, that we're rather in the habit of taking Leonardo's Vitruvian man and, and stretching this man out and putting him on building plans to see how they work. And I thought to myself, well, if this is a house for Mary, far more likely that this image of Mary, this canonical image of Mary, would be the one they'd proportion the cathedral on. Next one here. So, forgive the rather um, ancient slide. Here is the whole cathedral, the body of the cathedral, the crossing, the entrance here. Mary's crown is an, her head. But most important, there's a jewel in the center of her crown, a little blue jewel. Can you see that one? That is there, and that is on what's called the rond-pont. The rond-pont is the geometric center for the whole of the arc of the back of the cathedral. The Christ child is sitting here, and he has, most curiously, a tall cross on his throat chakra. And remember, it's from his throat that Christianity came, before it was written down by anybody. It manifests from the throat here, of course. So on the crossing, exact crossing of the cathedral is where Christ's throat is. His hand is up in blessing with the two fingers here, and he's holding the book down here. The rest of his body is here and the rest of Mary's body. I, I proportioned it to her two feet were the two entrance points at the west front and the crowning of her um, radiant halo and jewel were on the rompon. The Holy Spirit and the druidic arrow, which we still use on ordnance survey all over the country here, coming from the, the Holy Spirit is here in, in the upsidal chapel at the end here. So that seemed to me quite a reasonable way of looking at how they might proportion the cathedral. Um, next one here. Uh, sorry, this is a close-up of what I was talking about just earlier. There's, there's the jewel, there's the rompon. Her halo follows around the ambulatory at the back. Now the other intriguing thing is that these are stars in the stained glass window these stars, and they're all of them very accurately eight-sided. They land up exactly on the columns in the plan, and the columns themselves are also octagonal. So the series of coincidences seem to be get, get better and better for me, but I do have to say that as a lover of Chartres, I'm still quite unreliable. Next one here. So what is above that jewel? The very highest point is messenger of God, Gabriel. The angel Gabriel is above, this, this point here is exactly above that point there on the roof which, which comes up to a climax above it. It is the most holy part, is that the, the oldest part of the cathedral has all grown from that point, from the earliest archaeological remains of the previous temples come to, from the point here. The, the earliest little Roman temple is about this big. They get bigger and bigger until we have the whole cathedral. Now, what's interesting about Gabriel is, with those big wings, the word for breath and the word for air in the Greek, which we have translated the Bible, sometimes it means spirit, pneuma, the Greek pneuma, is where we get pneumonia from. Pneuma means that Gabriel is blessing the direction which the wind comes from. The wind comes there and that statue turns around because the wind passes the big wings at the back and wherever the wind is coming from, Gabriel is blessing the direction of the wind. 
most extraordinary thing, beautiful thing, beautiful idea. And of course, the breath is the breath of the spirit. Next one here, the wind. So just looking at it again, here's the whole arc. There is a perfect hexagon from the center of the labyrinth to the inside face of the walls here, to the rompon, which is where Gabriel's above there, the jewel where her jewel of her crown was, back here. That's a perfect hexagon. And the, it completes here where we thought the old rose window was probably going to be, and then they decided to move it forward. There was a Galilee porch outside there, and they moved the front through to here. Now the rose window's here. I'll talk about that in a minute. So the key here is, who is it that is at this point which strikes this arc? And who is it which is at that point which strikes that arc? They are two personages. In fact, they're more than two personages. This actually throws extraordinary light on the feminine nature of the whole of Christianity at that time. Bishop Fulbert was a great lover of Mary, and he converted the Western church at that time to a liturgy, which was, was called a Marial liturgy. Most extraordinary thing. Of course, since, we, since Protestantism, we have a problem that Mary almost completely got lost. So the recovery of the feminine principle here is, 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 was, was absolutely uppermost. Next one here, I think we're going to look at here. We're looking at that gatepost there. And remember, a gatepost, there are, there are only two gateposts in the cathedral. One coming in from the north, one coming in from the south. Who is that on that gatepost? Some people will know, probably. It's Anne. But not only that, it's not only Anne, it's also Mary. It's the child Mary. And this points to the fact that the Christianity at Chartres embraced an apocryphal part of the Bible which has been expunged in Latin, a part of Christendom called the Protevangelium. The Protevangelium, I recommend anybody who wants to know a little bit more about their Christianity, if they wish to expand it, would be to read the Protevangelium. Anne, or Hannah, was the miraculous mother of Mary. Mary was also a miraculous birth by her miraculous mother here. So there are two women here, key women, to the understanding that the people at Chartres had of the miracle of the way in which Christianity came about. And they are the fact that Hannah was a prophetess who was well beyond childbearing age, and a miracle came to her. God said, you're going to have a child. And she had a husband called Jershim, who was very shocked to hear all this. All this is beautifully written in the Protevangelium. And she gave birth to Mary. And that was a miraculous birth in itself. Now, I'm not asking anybody to believe anything. They don't want to or whatever. But it is absolutely fascinating that such a cathedral as Chartres should base. Now, there's a window. The lovely blue window I showed you is right here, the Belverier window. The window which is completely about the Protevangelium is this window here. The whole life of, of uh, the prophetess Anna and the young Mary. Young Mary was given to the temple at the age of 12 or 13 and then eventually was given to Joseph to look after. And that's all beautifully written in this, if you wish to look at it that way. But uh, later on in, in Christianity, they decided not to, to get rid of it. Sadly. Okay, next one here. That's one gatepost. Here's the other gatepost. The other gatepost is Christ holding the Bible. So, Anna and Mary are the entrance from the north, and they symbolize, that side of the cathedral symbolizes the whole of time before 
the advent of Christ. And the south porch, which is Christ here, you'll see he's actually standing on two extraordinary creatures. He's, he's actually conquered dualism. In other words, he's a living paradox in himself. He is actually standing here as the gatepost. As I said, there are only two gateposts in the whole cathedral. That's one, been cleaned recently. This one's yet to be cleaned, and that's Christ. So across the width of the crossing is the whole story of the development from Christ, who will become a child of Mary here, through to his fulfillment and offering this Bible to the world here. Next one. Above Christ, here, are a most extraordinary series of events, um, and the geometry of this is quite staggering. Whether you're going to go to hell, which is this side, of the, this is the angel of judgment here, or going to heaven, which is this side, I suppose the only encouraging thing here is that even if you're going to hell, both are golden mean rectangles. Gosh, what a relief. So you can head off with a golden mean rectangle to hell or to heaven. But above that is Christ, um, showing his wounds to, to um, Mary on the one side and John, I think it is, on this side. And the geometry of this curvature here is based on five, five-pointed star, and I'll show that in a minute. And the geometry points have been shown quite clearly in the figure here. This was discovered by a German engineer who had no esoteric pretensions and didn't tell likely stories like Keith Critchlow does but he stuck very much to the um, guns. Next one here. There is his, and this is the analysis of how, this curvature here, this curvature here is struck from a point here. This curvature here is struck from a point here. Those are the two points which actually make the two curves of the arch. And it makes a perfect five-sided figure. Now the other positions in Christ's body here, again, once this central point, here is the source of Christianity, is the, is, the, is the oral source, is the source of sound from which we get Christianity. So this, if it was a Hindu diagram, it would be called the Yantra. But it is a very, very good example of sacred geometry setting the inner hidden bones of wrapping the flesh of the mythology, if you like, or the naturalism of Christ and the figures on it. So the, the architect and the sculptor working together very, very closely. Next one there. Same thing is true of, here is Anna. Two golden mean rectangles here. This curvature here and that curvature there are struck from two points underneath these two columns. And again, it's based on the same fivefold, exact fivefold geometry. Um, I've done a little bit of analysis, but not a great deal to show here. Next one here. Because what I've discovered is that the, the great module for finding proportions in sacred architecture, particularly Christian architecture, is the halo. Now, there's a triple halo holding these. This is, sorry, I should say this is, the, this is the presentation of Mary to become queen of heaven. And very interesting, this is the first image, I believe, that's ever carved of the idea that Mary was equal to Christ in heaven. Quite a radical thing. And the way in which they got the authority to do this, which hadn't been done before, was to find the best consultant in Europe to go to. It's the kind of thing we would do today. Let's find the best consultant. Best consultant was a rather frail, modest, but extraordinary young nun in Germany. And um, Elizabeth of Schonau, 
was this nun, uh, looked after by Hildegard of Bingen. Hildegard wrote some lovely letters to her about not, not to starve herself, not to abuse her body because she needed it. But she ha had a lot of trouble being a psychic. Um, and so they knew that the sensitivity of the people at Chartres, they sent a delegation to her and said, is Mary on equal terms with Christ in heaven? And she said, well, come back in a week because I'll ask her. Now, that would be treated with humor these days. But as far as she's concerned, very serious. So they came back in a week's time. She said, yes, she was. At the same time, they decided to ask her about the seven liberal arts. They said, could Mary, because they knew she was a young girl, because the pro to Evangelium said so, could she do the seven liberal arts? Quite a critical question. Was she capable of doing the seven liberal arts? Elizabeth Shonner was very indignant. She said, do them, she said. She was them. So, Virgin Mary, Virgin Consciousness, purity of Virgin Consciousness meant that she was the seven liberal arts. Anyway, here she is being presented, being crowned by Jesus and equally in heaven. Underneath this triple canopy, which of course is a, um, a symbol of the Trinity here. I've just shown the modules of proportion which come down through to this point here. And this column is a symbol of Anna being a support to that event being possible and happening. Every single thing about the sculpture in Chartres is beautifully geometrically proportioned. There's a square in there, and you can see the five-pointed star quite easily on which the geometry is um, based, the curvature of the geometry. And both of these, um, all, the, all the different lines, do seem to coordinate for the sculpture. Next one here. So, in the window of the story of Mary, and following the story of the Protegen Evangelium, Hannah meets Jerushim at the gates of Jerusalem. Now here is the symbol of the gate of Jerusalem here, and what an extraordinary proportion that it is. So much so, you could even wonder if somebody could get through it. But every single thing in Chartres has a basis in the sacred sciences of arithmetic, geometry, and so forth. So the geometry behind this, you see Jerushim with his um, crook, because he's uh, looking after creatures in the field. This is Hannah coming to tell him that she's going to have a child, and they, they meet again. So taking this as the clue here, I decided to make an analysis of why this is proportioned the way it was. And this is my result here. Next one. Now, I'm sure there's some Kabbalists in the room, and they know what an extended tree looks like, but we have exactly the right numbers and the right number of circles for it to actually fulfill, taking the proportions from here and the proportions from the halos of Jerushim and Hannah. The halos of the, both the sculptures and the um, glasswork are the clues to how the proportions work. This is the journey of the soul offered to those who wish to find out about it. No, he, again, completely, in this case, esoteric, but understood. The, the two pillars are here quite clearly, and, and the pathway up the two pillars is quite accurately proportioned. But you need to know a little bit about Kabbalah to get into that. Next one here. The same proportions exactly of the church which was the one which burnt down for Fulbert to re 
rebuild. Bishop Fulbert came in and he extended the church out to this, this green outline here. And eventually the, the cathedral we have now even went further out still and the new cathedral went right out to, to make these crossings. Fulbert's second cathedral and went, came straight here. And the end of it was going to be here, not where the, these are the two towers, not in the front here. But that exact same proportion is being used. By the way, this is the earliest little, um, they don't even know this was a Christian temple. This is the earliest temple on the site the archaeologists found. And some people are very scathing about the fact that Druidism accepted Christianity very easily without any battles, any fights, any squabbles. One of the reasons being that the basic religious faith of the Druids on that site was that God, a saving God called Hesu, H-E-S-U, Hesu, was going to be born of a virgin. And when the Christians brought their message to them, the Druids embraced them and said, fine, we've been expecting you sort of thing. And although some people are very cynical about that, and these, these histories are not written until quite a few hundred years later, um, but it's an oral tradition. Oral traditions don't get written down very often. That's why they're oral traditions. Anyway, next one here. So, we come to where Christ's feet are. This is going back to the image of Mary on the plan. Her, her two feet are the entrances, or the entrance and the exit. And Christ's feet land up on the labyrinth. So the other thing that Gerbert came across and learned when he was in Spain was what we now call Neoplatonic, what the Neoplatonic model of the universe was. And that model of the universe was not only a physical model, but primarily it was a psychological model, psychological meaning the science of the soul. The rest of the universe is there for us to learn how we can get through this incarnation, how we can get through this life. And everything, even says in the Holy Quran, there are signs on the horizons and in ourselves, whereby we know what our connection with the rest of the universe is. So next one here, we'll have a look at the labyrinth very quickly. Most stunning thing, and one thing I feel very happy about, and ever since I've been going to Chartres, when I first went to Chartres, it was absolutely forbidden for anybody to even acknowledge there was a maze. This is 40 years ago. Not only the, that, they kept chairs over it all the time, so nobody could possibly, hopefully wouldn't see it, and certainly wouldn't, wouldn't walk on it. But now, since I've published my little pamphlet, which I think there's a copy there, and it was taken up in America and, and with great enthusiasm, so many batches of people come from America now, they clear the chairs off because it's um, good tourist industry. Sorry, I mustn't know nothing about it. Anyway, here we have the most extraordinary labyrinth, and it's very lucky to have survived because most of the labyrinths on the cathedral floors in France got destroyed because they were esoteric in as much nobody actually wrote on them what they were and what they were for. So some of the bishops later on, in their ignorance, thought they were just for children to play on, and the children were nuisance because they made too much noise, etc., etc. But Chartres survived, and it is, as far as I'm concerned, a perfect model of the Neoplatonic, as it's called. I don't like the word Neoplatonic. Um, I'm going to coin a word called Platonity. Like you have Christianity, you can have Platonity. Um, anyway, the point is, it's not nothing new in one way, but Plotinus was a great um, developer of uh, Platonic theories, and Cicero wrote them down, and they had a copy of Cicero's book in charge, so no doubt Gerber managed to get his hands on one. So, next one here. There is a model of the Muslim universe, drawn in exactly a similar manner as that is drawn on there, 
Of course, the, the center part in this case here has not got the six petals there, but each one of the planets also represented one of the prophets. Very, very important principle, which is a whole lecture one can give on its own about such. But the, what Jerba will have come across was the um, Islamic models of the universe were identical. The 11 envelopes were identical with the Neoplatonic ones. Next one here. So there they are. The, this is the world, the physical world, which I'm very, very happy to have made an analysis of, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but we are surrounded by the moon. The physical world, which you finally come to in the center of the labyrinth, is called the sublunar world. So here's the moon, we are below the moon, and we're subject to all the physical forces of Earth, air, fire and water and the flesh and so forth. The next envelope around the moon is, is the Mercury. Next envelope is Venus, the next is the Sun, then Mars, then Jupiter, then the sphere of Saturn, then the zodiacal sphere. That is the limit of what the physical eye can see. Then there are three invisible envelopes, which are absolutely critically important. One is the world soul, as Plato carefully constructs out of mathematical proportion in the Timaeus. Then the cosmic mind, that is the divine intellect. And finally, the, the unnameable, if you wish to name it, but, but nameable at the same time, the ultimate source of it all, the unity of God. So there are the 11 envelopes, and they fit the maze perfectly. Now, I'm very pleased to have discovered, and I've not published it, so I'm quite sure somebody in this room will do before I manage to. <laughs> these distances and these thicknesses of these paths are absolutely profound and critical. And I discovered you've got one two, three more that you can put in from here. So that what that means is you've got a circle in the middle here. That is exactly the same size as this. This path is the same size as this path. So you've got earth, water, air, and fire. The actual ability to put these in is precisely there to the, to the fraction of an inch. So that was built. Now, I also have a theory only, and it's only a theory, what, when you came in, you then were going to go around these, and this was the journey of life, and the journey of life actually meant the journey of the soul. Next one here. Now, this is, this is from, I, I got this from Rudolf Steiner, not personally from Rudolf Steiner, but from one of Rudolf Steiner's writings, and I thought, quite remarkable, the, the six stages of development for the medieval Christianity. You come in, the first thing is that you take on a vegetative body. The next thing is you take on an animal or reproductive body. The next one you take on is the sensitivity that comes out of that reproductive body. The next thing is your ability to be active. In Latin, these were called anima vegetiva, anima reproductiva, and so forth. Finally, you reach a stage of reflection through contemplation. What is the purpose of life all about? It's not just eating, drinking, sleeping, and so forth. There's much more to it. Finally, there's the possibility of realizing the fact that you are capable of being divine as well. So this one was called Anima Humano Divina. So in that, then, you, having gone through these six realizations, you can then make an exit. This is the theory, anyway. Don't and that is the process here. Next one here. Also, as a matter of interest, there are enough, 11 going in, 
11 coming out, and therefore the Hebrew alphabet can be given to each one of the paths going in and similarly to each one of the paths coming out. Next one here. Now, when you're going around the labyrinth on the floor, the one thing you can see above you, the huge rose window to the south, is what you're looking at here. It's the Last Judgment. And I have said for years that the Last Judgment window folds down onto the labyrinth. It's treated with quite a lot of sarcasm early. Slowly but surely, um, even dear Malcolm Miller, who's a good friend of mine, but very, very, very cautious of my ideas, um, has said there's a triangle which nearly works from the rose window to the labyrinth. Well, I'm now going to give you my uh, feelings as to why, what's working here. This whole rose window folds down is exactly the same size as the labyrinth. Therefore, the last judgment is part of the thing that you're going through when, when you do your soul journey coming in, then you remember your soul journey as you exit. This is the height of where the cathedral came to, and therefore the rose window could only actually be that big. So, quite deliberately, they actually raised the ceiling to up to here, so they could have a rose window that big. Now, why would they want to have a rose window that big, which is exactly the same size as the labyrinth, and why would they make the ceiling like that? Well, I just did this drawing, and quite honestly, taking the same geometry, this actually swings down exactly onto the labyrinth. Next one here. This shows the geometry of the window here. Having made your first step into the cathedral, and therefore this rose window lands up on the labyrinth here. Now, there's all sorts of questions as to why they should do that, but obviously a very good reason as far as they're concerned. And there it is. It's obviously something to do with heaven coming onto earth, or earth rising to heaven. But this, we have no other knowledge, no written knowledge about it whatsoever. Next one here. Now there's the hole of the window, and these are the three amazing windows below it on the west front, and that stretches from there to here. Next one here. Now just to go back to the fact that this, what I'm really putting forward as an idea is that the cathedral is a synthesis of Jewish wisdom, Greco-Hellenic wisdom, and Muslim wisdom, and synthesized into under the heading and under the inspiration of the Christian revelation. Now, if you're still um, worried about the idea of Judaism and Kabbalah being in the cathedral, I'd just like to offer this. Now, I normally I give an hour's lecture on this window alone, but don't worry about that. Okay. This is the tree of Jesse, where the tree is coming out of his loins, and there's going to be a king. And there are seven going up here until finally Christ. And you'll see up here some uh, circles around Christ. Can you see them? And they've got the Holy Spirit in these circles. Now I'm going to show you an engraving of that, that just that piece alone, engraving here. There it is. Here's Mary's head. Mary is the foundation. There's her head. She's the foundation of what becomes a Kabbalistic tree. There it is. Quite quite definitely. Not only that, it has in Latin the words in each circle. They can't be seen from the ground. This is an engraving which was done in the last century, thank God. And this word up here is called sapientia. Sapientia is the original sacred science. Rather than scientica, it's sapientia. It's the science of the soul. And the Holy Spirit is coming to 
through each one of these things, and that exactly fits the structure of the Kabbalistic tree, and here's an example of that. Next one. Yeah. Very well-known illustration, but you'll notice even to the fact that it begins to close in here, that these three and these three are parallel, but then they close in tighter around the center. Jesus' head and his voice, where Christianity came from, become Da'ath. Da'ath is not actually even put in here. Da'ath is the mysterious center um, where mysterious things come from and happen. So I find no problem with that. Um, it's, it's, um, I'm not trying to push anything on anybody. And as Plato says at the beginning of the Timaeus, all any human being can do is to give a likely story but you must give your utmost to that likely story. So it's a likely story to me. That the, there was a very large Jewish community in Charge, and the, even Rue des Juifs is still in Charge. The, 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 the Jewish quarter is still there. Of course, they've been persecuted and gone over some centuries. Sadly, the Jewish people have had a very rough time from both the Muslims and the Christians in bad times, but done extremely well in good times. There was a wonderful man called Shaprut, Shaprut, great Jewish, um, he was virtually the foreign minister of the king of Spain when, when Gerber got down there, and he was absolutely magnificent in uh, making peace also, and Gerber may well have got in contact with him. He could speak Latin, Arabic, and Judeo-Hebrew. Very rare thing. Shaprut, look it up on your Google box when you get home. Shaprut, okay. Next one here. And the next one here. Another one of the great, great minds of Chartres, and as fate will have it, untranslated in modern English. Total and utter disgrace. Christianity ought to be ashamed of itself. In the same way that theory of Chartres wrote this magnificent um, encyclopedia of how to teach people, how to do the liberal arts, same way he's not been translated, neither have the Brethren of Purity been translated. So here he is saying <coughs> what the what is necessary for philosophy. By the way, philosophie literally means the love of Sophie. Wisdom is feminine, wisdom is Sophia, is Sophie. Philosophie means the love of wisdom. And that was, love of wisdom was actually know that you're here for the journey of your soul, you're not here for the journey of your body alone. So this is how <coughs> it was set out at Chartres. Astronomy, it was the ritual of the stars under Saturn, and Ptolemy was given the... Um, these are mostly, of course, coming from the Western and Latin sources. Geometry, Euclid, arithmetic, Mars... Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Yes, um, arithmetic, Mars, Pythagoras, obviously. Music, Sun, Pythagoras again. Rhetoric, Venus, Cicero. These are, these are the masters they had at School of Chartres. Uh, the books they had anyway. Dialectic, Mercury, Aristotle, Grammar, Moon, Donatus. Well, I have to say that I have not read Donatus, nor have I read much of Cicero, so I feel ignorant there too. But nevertheless, there's a lot to be learned. These were now put, carved around the nativity scene on the west front of Chartres, around Mary and Christ child. Next one here. I'm delighted that we've got a new secretary at our foundation called Carla, and she managed to Google this one up. 
and it, it is really very, very rare indeed, incredibly rare. It's the first time I've ever seen it, of geometry actually being taught. This is geometry herself. The seven liberal arts were the handmaidens of the soul. They're the handmaidens of the soul. They're always feminine, and they're always the ones that teach the human race. And this will be the teacher of these people behind here. And here she is teaching geometry in a sand tray. Has anybody here done geometry in a sand tray? Yes, good. I'm glad somebody's done geometry in a sand tray. And there's a very good reason why geometry was done in a sand tray. Because you could actually, with a slight jog of your arm, you could actually erase everything that you've just been doing. It kept it an incredibly esoteric science. But she's also got in her hand a pair of dividers, which I have never seen. And I've, yet, I've yet got to make a model of these to see how they actually work. But it's, it's called a single-handed compass, but I think also it does other things as well. But here are the figures she's made in the sand tray. And that's how um, the, the great tradition, even Augustine talks about people doing the geometry in the sand tray. That's how the geometry was taught. But, very importantly, she's holding the square. Remember we saw the picture of the woman with the square, the man with the dividers? Here she is with this rather curiously unsquare-looking square. Well, luckily, even quite recently, next one here, somebody did some research into one of these squares. Here's such a square, and you can see how it gets fatter up there. The fact of the matter is, if you go from here, this point in the square, through right down to here, this bottommost point here, like that. That will make a square root of three rectangle, what's called a root three rectangle. That is the very first one that's in the Timaeus. That is a proportion of the square root of three to one. Now, if you then, on that diagonal line going through, you take that position there, remember this upright is a different line to that one. Take that point there and run it through to this point here on that diagonal. That will give you a golden mean rectangle. So that same single instrument will give you a golden mean rectangle and a square root of three rectangle. Square root of three would be very, very important to the Christians because it had direct relationship to the mystery of three. The fact that we can't find a square root of three, it goes on forever. No computer can compute the end of a square root of three. It was the Holy Trinity, therefore it would be transrational, it would be beyond rationalization. Golden mean, of course, is one of the great secrets here. That the golden mean rectangle, the red one, that came out of the five, five-pointed star we saw earlier. Next one here. So sometimes the masons did carve themselves in the cathedrals, and here we have a single-handed compass, a square, an equilateral triangle underneath it, and this is a compass that you can. And people who do, do sailing um, probably are quite used to using single-handed compasses. Uh, but sometimes you need to hold onto the ship with one hand and do your calculations while the ship's rolling. So one, you squeeze there and it um, will bring the compass in and you squeeze here, you open and close it with one hand by this, by this gadget. Next one here. Now of course, during this time, uh, Christ as Pancrator, the creator of everything, um, is often represented here as a geometer, which shows what elevated position geometry had really been placed. This is the creation, this is the manifest world that we're in. And this is his pair of dividers. But we see much more than just a pair of dividers and a creation there. What did Christ say he was? 
I am the alpha and omega. Okay, so his dividers are the alpha and the creation is the omega. So he's both the beginning of everything and the completion of everything. But even more interesting to me on this diagram is that the apex of this instrument is in his throat region. It gets to a point where his heart is and it begins to divide and then the rest of this is in the action body of the middle of his being. So there's a great deal of information being given in an image like that. It's not just a primitive painting. Very profound. Next one here. So the two arcs which go either side of Christ is not only the first proposition of Euclid, but it's also his light body. Something very common and well known in other more oriental religions. Next one here, just to give you an example. The Lord Buddha, and you can see from so much of it that this not only is the first proposition of Euclid, but it wasn't until in our lifetime that we got Proclus, Proclus's commentary on the Timaeus, pointing out that it was actually a spiritual book, not just a mechanical book on geometry. It only translated within the last 15 years. And in it, he talks about every single thing in, 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 in Euclid is based on spiritual principles. Well, what I obviously is going on here, for, for people in Chartres who are able to see light bodies, and some people are fortunate enough to be able to see light bodies, then um, this is a sort of confirmation. In my strange and weird eclectic life, I was at one point asked to design a Buddhist temple for some Buddhists in Colorado. And I asked them on what principle I should design. I was very surprised that they asked me. And I said, do I design it on the proportions of the body of the Buddha? And um, so this Rinpoche, who I had this interview with, said, no, no need to. Um, he showed me an image like this. He said, this is the Buddha. This is merely his last incarnation. Don't worry about it. Although there are many uh, Tibetan examples of, of proportions taken from this to make it as beautiful as possible, but he said, make them, this is the Buddha. So in a sense, this may be Jesus, but this is his Christic nature. That's one way of looking at it, if we take that as a possibility. And therefore, it's correct for the, that shape to be the whole of the cathedral, the geometry defining the whole of the cathedral. Next one here. Next one here. In <coughs> Buddhism, this circle on this side, it's reversed in Chartres, it's called Alaya Vijnana, that is universal consciousness, crossing over the, this circle on this side, which is Mano Vijnana, and that is empirical consciousness. The join between them, which is the vesica in which Christ is, is called Manas, that is, that is human consciousness, that is the mind, Manas. Now what's interesting about it, if you draw it accurately, this shape which Jesus is in is the overlapping of two circles. It's sharp. This would be the moon side with the moon tower and that would be the solar side. But this shape here is actually, not only does it contain square root of three to one, but it is a musical fifth, three to two. Proportion of three to two is a musical fifth. Gregorian chanting, most sacred music in Christianity, is based on a pentatonic scale. Maybe purely coincidental, I don't know. Next one here. So here we have the whole front. We've been looking at this shape where Christ is in here. 
what's interesting is the four levels, which I've talked about before, are quite clearly given here. This is the level of the passing world. This is the level at which we, as human beings who go to Chart, come and go. We come and go in our lives, and we come and go to the cathedral. From this level upwards, a new level begins. These are the most extraordinarily, and as far as I'm concerned, the most beautiful sculptures that have ever been made in Europe, and they continue to be so. Absolutely sublime sculptures, and they're long and thin, rather like El Greco's paintings. When El Greco was asked about them, he said, well, this is the way I see it. And so people said, oh, he had something wrong with his eyes. Anyway, this is called the domain of royalty, which in Sufi language means a state of consciousness above the everyday. Next level, third level up, 14 apostles. We have 12 respectable apostles, contemporary Christianity, but in fact, at Chartres, there are two more. And James, who wrote the Proto-Evangelium, may be one of those. But I believe in Rumi, the great Sufi poet, he talks about there being 14 Christian apostles. So from in, up to royalty, then the next level is apostleship, and then finally the unifying completion of human possibility, the humano divino, or humanity divine, the Christian Christ. So there's the four levels. Where we are, animal level, human, royal level, apostle level, and finally the level of Christ. They're available to us, and that's what's being offered. Next one here. So here we have the three beautiful windows, the tree of Jesse window here, the big rose window right above this point. Outside world we're looking at here. If you look at that window carefully, you can see it's a, it's a little temple turned inside out. It's like an umbrella, which is halfway between being inside out and being proper. Can you see how it's, it's a temple standing in infinity, in the infinite plane? That is the basis, and that is the column standing up, and there'll be one of these only at the apex of it. It's a little temple which has been splayed out. Lovely example of infinity. Next one, over here. No, other way. Above this figure of Christ, by the way, we show, I showed these are the people going to heaven, those going to hell up here, the golden means. This Bible is being held by Christ in a very, very particular way, in a very particular position on his body. And it's going from his navel center to his heart center, and it's lying at the angle of 24 and a half degrees, which is the angle that planet Earth is going around the solar system. And it is, happens to be a golden mean rectangle as well. Above Christ, next one here, is the other great rose window, the south rose window, where here's Christ in glory and most extraordinary collection of kings here, each with a musical instrument and a flask in their hand. Now, you can make them out to be a bunch of hedonist drunkards, if you like, or you can say, maybe there's something we don't know here going on. Maybe they're alchemists, I don't know. Anyway, Mary and Hannah um, are very, very black at this time. This photograph was taken. They're trying to clean them up now. But um, the black virgin is a very important part of the mythology. So here we have the great... This is called the window showing all time after the advent of Christ. Next one here. Then we have, <coughs> this is another way of looking at 
We have Christ standing with the doors closed. We're very, very fortunate. Last time we went to Chartres as a group, they allowed us to open these doors. And my eldest daughter happened to be furthest down the stairs and suddenly saw up through to the rose window, which is about 300 feet away. So it's rather like the metaphor of Christ saying, knock and it shall be opened. So if you knock on the door, it shall be opened. Next one here. And that's what's possible to see. It is actually possible to see that exactly. What's happening? Of course, his heart chakra is fully inflamed and fully, absolutely. In other words, rather like the Buddha. The, the Buddha is telling me that this is not Christ. This is just his last incarnation. This is the Christ. It's something to do with that. It's something to do with this extraordinary thing. Anyway, just thought we might look at that rose window as, as a finish to this talk. Next one here. It is the most extraordinary window, and it is the whole of time before the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ is here. There's a Christ child, a Mary, and the Holy Spirit is in four doves. And people have different ideas about what those four doves mean, whether those four doves are four dimensions and goodness knows what. But what you have around here is the 12 um, kings, or the, the 12 uh, sacred figures of the... Torah, or the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, if you want to call it, David, Solomon, Rabbiam, and so forth, and it goes around. And they're all in squares. Now, if we can do it, um, forgive this experiment, next one here. That's the basis of the proportion of those squares and the proportions of the window. Now, Simon's going to try, if he can, to mani manipulate this. This is probably totally forbidden in lectures, but I'd rather like you to see this going out of focus and being brought back in again. Now, one of the reasons for doing this is that when you're contemplating sacred images, it isn't necessary for you to keep a sharply focused eye. If that sacred image takes you into reverie, takes you into a meditative state, then something like this can take you into this. And if we bring it back slowly, it is quite extraordinary what, what just simply putting it out of focus does. That is going from your fleshly eye, if you like, to your that organ of perception within you. Slowly, each set of squares begins to manifest as the focus comes back in. Okay, Simon, we can stop that. I shall get, I shall get done for hypnotizing audiences. <laughs> next one, next one here, please. I'm going to finish off with a couple of quotations. First of all, a reminder that my hero for the evening is and will be for some time now, Pope Sylvester II. He went to Jerusalem very bravely, the first pope to do so, to meet Hakim III. Hakim III, the, the Muslim ruler of Jerusalem at the time, received him very warmly, and he brought with him a whole new body of people that he had founded in Rings. And that was the body of the, the, the order, as it's called, the Order of the Chroniclers. He wanted to find out which documents they agreed on and which they didn't. So when they got there, Hakim III, the people in Rome were very suspicious of him going, and that got worse and worse, sadly. But Hakim was very good, and Hakim gave him a Byzantine church on the outskirts of Jerusalem to be a library and a chapter house, and so they started their work and studies. Eventually, uh, political crises being what they are, Jerba was called back to Rome. And of all rather sad situations, um, not long after Gerber got back to Rome, both his 
his royal patron and himself both mysteriously met their deaths, and very soon after, so did Hakim III. After that, very sadly indeed, the chroniclers in Rome decided to slowly but surely vilify Sylvester. And it's the thing that happens, sadly, to too many peacemakers. They get vilified. Anyway, that's, that's the, the story. The, the historians from the Muslim side gave us the truth of what happened, but the Roman people who were against him going said that he was converted to Islam. Therefore, we can wipe him off. That proves he was in with the devil or something like that. Anyway, next one here. We're nearly there. Finally, Fulbert. The music you heard when you came in was by Bishop Fulbert. Fulbert was set up by Gerber to start the school of Chartres. That's my contention. He was a student of his. He said, go to Chartres. There's a, there's a master of medicine there. You're a good medical man. Go there as a medic medician and slowly but surely start the school. Now, all the students of Fulbert, Fulbert became the bishops all over France and all the great cathedrals grew out of their bishoprics. They, the, the, the inspiration of this extraordinary flowering of, of these great cathedrals ca came primarily from the students of Fulbert. Very modest man, a man who was completely dedicated to the worship of the Virgin Mary. And I've no doubt that when Gerber was in, in, in Spain, he learned of the respect the Muslims had for Mary in as much that Mary's young Jewish girl gave birth to Christianity but is the only person in the Holy Quran to whom a miracle happens. Mainly because the Quran itself is a miracle, as far as the Muslims concerned, and quite correctly. But Mary, when the dates fell and saved her life, that's the recorded in the Holy Quran. So this was a realization by Jerba that Mary was the key to a form of world peace at his time, anyway. And he did an amazing job of bringing Hungary into Christianity and huge areas of Europe which weren't even Christianized. So, great man but sadly vilified. But if you want to Google him, you'll find some very good stories on it. Fulbert, he did a magnificent job. He was a great Platonist and called by his students our Socrates. Next one there, and I must finish now. I kept you all my far too long. There's a lovely little statement by um, Fulbert. There is some of his work translated. First of all, I thought it'd be nice to read this. Woe to the hypocrite for indeed he gains nothing. But this is rather lovely too. Virtue defined. Virtue consists in the firm resolve to obey the Lord and in the gift of the ability to hold to the golden mean. Now he certainly did that in his life and was beloved by all his students. Next one here. I think this is going to be... I thought I'd just give you two quotes on music to show him how important music was. Music should please the ear in order to move the heart. It should, by striking a golden mean between the frivolous and the harsh, wholeheartedly affect man's entire nature, that is, by harmonizing it towards a greater and greater unity. This is St. Bernard, and of course, there were two very, very important Bernards at Chartres, Bernards of Chartres. There was also a great Jewish poet called Matthias of Chartres. But who, who reads Jewish poetry? Some of the greatest Jewish poetry was done in Spain at the time Gerbert was there. And, of course, out of that world, the 10th century, grew the Kabbalah in the south of France. Next one here, I think it's the last one. No, one more after this. The, the, the final apex of the school of Chartres is John of Salisbury. Rather nice it should be an Englishman. Why should it be nice to be an Englishman? Only because I'm English. It's complete chauvinism. Um, anyways, John of Salisbury witnessed the death of 
rather important Thomas O'Beckett in Canterbury. He was his secretary. And he fled to France because um, the people who done in poor old Thomas O'Beckett um, thought it might do him in. So he was welcomed to Chartres and became the, the, the bishop there and, and wrote a wonderful book called The Metalogicon. It's in, in modern English. Metalogicon. Beautiful book about the seven liberal arts. But here again he's talking about the same thing. Music embraces the universe, reconciling the dissonant and the dissonant. Multi, sorry, the dissonant and dissonant. Multitude of beings by the law of proportion. Again, always proportion is... is by this law, the heavenly spheres are harmonized, the cosmos as well as man governed. In other words, there's nothing separate in the whole movement of the universe and of human soul and human body. Final one here. No, it isn't quite the final one, but the final one you should look at. Next one, last one here. This is... This is... John of Saul will be writing, and the, the beloved old man of Chartres, Bernard, Bernard of Chartres, who said, a humble mind, a zeal to learn, a life of quiet, a silent search, a lack of wealth, a foreign land. These are the keys that open when we read the doors to light our might, our night of ignorance. Well, I've, sorry I've galloped through that a bit, and you've been a very good, quiet audience, so I think you ought to be allowed to go home now. Thank you very much. The crypt's very important. The, the, the problem with giving any talk about Chartres is that um, you could give an evening on every single thing. But the crypt is very, very important. The biggest crypt in France is, is the crypt of Chartres. It's the biggest one in the whole of France. And that was put in there by Fulbert because they took people in who were not yet sure they were going to be Christians in the uh, south door of the crypt and they let them sleep and fed them in the crypt and if they then chose which ones they thought were going to make it to be Christians and be faithful they would let them up under the moon tower There's a, there was an exit up there and they were allowed into the church where other people came into the church but it's a very and if you go to Chartres it's absolutely wonderful to go into the crypt and there's an extraordinary dedicated lady who has got wonderful transparencies one over the other and so forth and if you get get her going she's she's wonderful one of the guides if you can get a guide to the crypt make sure she's a lady no well you know i can give another hour on the labyrinth as well this is a problem the point about it is that there are 22 letters to the hebrew alphabet and i was going to put into this talk one thing that gerbert would have learned when he went to spain was that why didn't plato have numbers written numbers and the fact of the matter is both hebrew Greek, which is, the, which is the sacred language of the Bible, and Arabic all have numbers for each of the letters. And therefore, all the scriptures, the revelations in those three um, religions can be turned into mathematical formula and were done so. The, the, the measures of certain sacred spaces were, were, came directly from translating words. The, word, the name Maria, for instance, was used in Glastonbury. But in this particular case, Tom, uh, it was just pointing out 11... Um, steps in and 11 steps out. Uh, the, the Hebrew alphabet is often shown in, in a spiral, 
but it, and, and if you study the Kabbalah at all, every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is placed on one of the pathways of the tree, the tree of knowledge or the tree of life or whatever you want to call it, most of the tree of knowledge. There's a good reason for it being there, yes, but that's another lecture. The pattern that you saw, interestingly enough, is, the, is 12, which is a symbolic of not only the zodiacal 12 and the 12 prophets of the Old Testament, but um, they, that pattern exactly harmonizes the square root of 3 and the square root of 2 in a proportional diminishing manner. You could put a series of flowers and, and the phylotaxis and things of flowers onto the screen and show it. <coughs> flowers normally do a Fibonacci sequence or they do a root 3 sequence. I've not yet seen it, a root 2 sequence. Maybe um, Rupert can help with that one. <laughs> but um, it, it is interesting that it's just that they are symbols of, of the spiral of growth of life and so forth. If you, if you fold your hand up like that, it folds up in, 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 in a logarithmic spiral. Every living thing, every living thing is, um, unfolds in that way. And no doubt, metaphysically, the heart folds and unfolds that way. I thought you were going to play I thought you were going to play Mary. Again, that's lovely. Yeah. That was wonderful, as always. It must be time to go catch your train. Mm, uh, How are we doing? I don't know. Oh, I think we're all right. I, I, hope, I hope we've banished. I went. I galloped. No, no, that was about the right length. Was